Welcome to Escape Routes with Condé Nast Traveller. My name is Melinda Stevens, the Editor-in-Chief of Condé Nast Traveller US and Condé Nast Traveller UK, and it is my pleasure to introduce you to our podcast series. Travel is all about storytelling, a story of a place, of its people, of a journey, and at Condé Nast Traveller we've always celebrated the most transportative, evocative travel writing. With much of the world currently grounded, we've come together to take you to some of our favourite places, if only in your imagination, by listening to our most loved travel stories read aloud by the writers who penned them. We hope these short escape routes allow you to daydream of far-flung adventures, discover the world's curious corners or recast familiar destinations in a fresh light, and that you love these travel stories as much as I do. Hello, my name is Antonia Quirk and welcome to Condé Nast Traveller's Escape Routes. I'll be reading my piece on Southern Sicily, which featured in the January 2016 issue of Condé Nast Traveller. I hope you enjoy it. Picture four towns, yellow as cider held up to the light. Towns cut off from the rest of Sicily by geography, rough mountains, deep ravines, and yet close enough to each other to visit all in one day, and within reach of the sea, so you never feel trapped or grilled. Towns, once an architectural chaos of Middle Eastern and Punic, suddenly shaken into a formal beauty by a devastating earthquake in 1693. New stones were cut then, and streets redesigned by a Spanish duke. Avenues lengthened and straightened, staircases and grand churches all conceived with baroque grace, wit and order, space and air. Drive 90 kilometres south from Catania, along quiet roads bordered by hazelnut groves, and you might find yourself stuck behind a tractor piled with white onions, all the way into Noto, a UNESCO World Heritage Site, partly renovated after decades of neglect. The streets off the ravishing main drag are edged with genteel bars and shops selling coy lace dresses, leading to smaller lanes lined with bird-filled gardens and the occasional gently decaying palazzo where you pay just pennies to walk around. No guards stalk the rooms. One morning in the perfectly baroque Palazzo Nicolacci, I find a walnut billiard table nudging a broken harpsichord in a ballroom. On startlingly high borders are painted still bright birds of paradise, hunting rifles and parakeets. I see a sultan's turban tumbling into a scattered bunch of poppies, and I feel like I'm inside a jewel case. Even at 10am, the heat is drugging. Opening one of the long curtain windows in a side room laid out like a parlour, I sense it hasn't been sat in for years. But didn't Don Fabrizio in The Leopard once say that a house of which one knew every room wasn't worth living in? The little goldstone town is spread out below me, the sea beyond a blue vapour. 
On the steps of the grand town hall, young men lounge in the morning silence, scratching the ears of their brindled boxers, those most loyal dogs that are raced for bets alongside pimped-up scooters late at night through the back streets of Palermo. In the 1893 Café Sicilia next door, white-aproned waiters bring delicious iced coffee poured onto almond milk granita. For a couple of priests who are sitting mesmerised by the huge flight of steps leading up to the cathedral opposite. Rebuilt after part of the building collapsed in 1996, the inside of the cupola in San Nicolo was painted by the Russian artist Oleg Superico with a gigantic meditative fresco of the Pentecost. My devout friend Daniela used to go and watch him in the very early mornings, lying on high boards across the scaffolding, delicately painting directly onto the mortar of the 300-square-metre dome, the largest modern fresco in Italy. And one day, just like a scene in The English Patient, he hoisted her up rapturously on ropes to join him and to touch the swirling robes of his apostle, John. On Thursdays in the summer, after the delirious six o'clock peeling of church bells, Noto becomes fantastically alive, crowded with girls back from a day at the beach, singing along to a band, doing covers of old songs dedicated to romantic frustration. Nicola di Bari's La Prima Cosa Bella, then several in a more antique style, crescendo upon crescendo. Il tempo di imparare non lo e non so suonare, ma suono per te. La senti questa voce che canta il mio cuore. A table of 20-something beauties in shorts and diamante-studded boots scandalize the black-robed grandmothers shuffling along the cobbles. The girls order yet more wine and bread, eating and smoking hard with lovely brown, rapacious hands. The global craze for hair swept into large librarians' buns makes their young faces very classic, dark eyes marvellous and serious, perilously gorgeous to behold. Even the northern Europeans around here tonight seem from another time as though they arrived on some boat in the early 1950s. There's a blonde in a nip-waisted white frock, clinking silver bracelet and a high ponytail who looks like Sylvia Plath. In a piazza, a sun-drowsy, barefooted English art student carries small pots of watercolours and thumbed paperbacks in a weathered leather bag and he smokes on a bench opposite a fountain in which Hercules battles a monster. Just an hour's drive from Noto, the far smaller town of Shikli sits on the same latitude as Tunis and radiates a mix of bella figura, theatricality and extreme sweetness. Its central pedestrian street is paved with pale ceramic glimmering stones that seem to continually roll with snapdragons fallen from high window boxes. Many of the balconies in these towns are buttressed with such droll imagination. Gasping mermaids, monks clutching wriggling monkeys. My favourite in Chicli 
is a nobleman with a tremendous moustache gobbling grapes until, come the last carving, he is empty-handed and doleful. Sicilians have a great sense of irony and pessimism, a belief in Sod's law. Ask a Sicilian how they are and they will never say good, but the more cautious could be better. Never tempt fate, never be pompous. And although they have a great sense of fun and a wicked love of nicknames, I have met a pistola and the philosopher in less than two minutes in one village. They are far less fulsome than their reputation would have it, far less than the Neapolitans. My friend Emma from Naples, now long married to a glowering Sicilian baron, used to write overblown love stories for women's magazines in the 1970s, and she says she frequently made herself wail with her tales of grieving lovers and unfaithful husbands, weeping at her own desk in a way that would make her Sicilian husband look at his shoes. Around the famed and lightly crumbling Palazzo Beneventano in the centre of town, it was Anthony Blunt's favourite Baroque building, a sculptor opens the doors to his cool-walled workshop after breakfast and a boy pads past with a bag of pastries. Little okra dragonflies sit in the pools of water between morning scrubbed cobbles. This is beginning to feel like a place with money says the Viennese artist Katia Bernard to me. She comes to the town for the light and the long summers. It's still cheap enough to live as an artist, she says, but you have to wait hours for the bus. Outside cafes along Via Pena at dusk, all the talk tonight is of a caliph who just visited the town of Syracuse on a 132-foot yacht and bought all 3,000 seats at the ancient Greek amphitheatre there so he could watch a production of Aida all on his own. The painter Franco Polizzi, one of many artists in the Sheetley group who have gathered here to work since the 1980s, he eats a plate of donkey mortadella while a gang of children play hide-and-seek all around him. Bumping their heads as they count down each number, they move in a giggling tide up and down the stones, eventually ducking into a church to hide under a rococo platform decorated with life-sized lutes and cellos. When Syracuse was born, stresses Polizzi, lifting his eyes disbelievingly to heaven, there was no London. An antique dealer in Ortigia once told me that he finds all the best Italian stamps in London. The connection between the British and Italy is deep and long, although few poets or noblemen doing the Grand Tour ventured south of Palermo. Nothing beyond there to see, surely. For centuries, these towns were almost entirely bypassed by foreign visitors, and, excepting August, they are still rarely full of tourists. More northern Sicilians than anybody else, or perhaps a few Germans, standing around, looking at frescoes of a shepherdess, gazing down, as though she had just fallen out of heaven. Since Inspector Moltalbano was filmed in the area, more are coming, but Sheikli remains languorous. Time here is long. When one evening my college boyfriend Luca from Messina and I go looking in the Piazza Italia for a prawn and orange salad that his sister had insisted was troppo bona, nobody seems to be serving it. 
When did she actually eat it, I ask? Five, six years ago, shrugs Luca, rolling a cigarette. I stop in my tracks. Surely they'll have changed the menu by now. This, Luca finds hilarious. Nothing can prepare you for the first view of Ragusa. The oldest part of the city, Ibla, was split in two by the earthquake and part of it rebuilt in the Baroque style. But hints of the old town still sit alluringly cheek by jowl with such formal perfection. As you round the bend on the road from Modica, up the town rises like a giant sandcastle, a thing of part dilapidated magnificence conceived in a moment of delirium. Ragusa is secretive, it is mysterious. Walking around you feel weirdly high up. Even the squares are on a rake. At all times there's this sense of being on a hill, of walking on air, surrounded by silence. Or perhaps the sound is muffled because your eyes are working overtime. In the streets, radiating from the immaculate Piazzo Duomo, tiny hidden orange gardens give on to palazzos nuzzling more palazzos with guest rooms and state rooms and saddle rooms now turned into a ticket office in which a guide clock watches and counts change, sitting on a tatty 19th century cushion the colour of velvety moss. The highly polished marble floors in a neoclassical social club where 18th century Ragusan gentry gathered to talk and to drink throw up a brooding haze in the late afternoon and I peer through the windows before a janitor shoes me away and locks up at five o'clock. Still, I half spy a citrus grove lying beyond, exquisitely private. Later, sitting outside the church of San Giuseppe with my local friend Teresa, we watch the funeral of a 104-year-old Benedictine nun. Her coffin appears covered in white roses. Two dogs sleep outside the door of the church, stretched like figures in relief. It strikes me that at this moment every human in my vision, bar the pallbearers and the now-emerging organist, is eating ice cream in some form. Cone, tub, brioche and the miniature two-bite conno turco dipped in highly flavoured, sometimes perfumed hard chocolate to prevent drips. Sicilians claim they invented ice cream and they frown at any mention of more ancient Arabian sorbets. The square is quiet, a slight breeze moving over all. Teresa tells me a story of the remains of the convent of St Mary and Jesus nearby with its overgrown garden, where a week before a workman she knows saw a ghost of a Franciscan friar and fell back into a hole in shock, snapping his leg. Teresa's face is solemn, despite the drooly smells of stuffed tomatoes wafting from the restaurant next door. It is impossible to spend time in Ragusa and not talk of ghosts. Photographs of the recently departed completely plaster the town and on the 2nd of November, the Day of the Dead, everybody shivers. 
We trudged through the square on a long dusk and wine tour of Teresa's favourite sites. The Iron Balcony, where Marcello Mastroianni appeared in divorce Italian style, playing an impoverished Sicilian nobleman. The Red House, where the Inquisition punished a lovelorn priest. The apartment where an old American pianist lives who can be heard playing Ravel on Christmas Day. Everywhere, broken stone walls overhang with wild capers. Drunkish now, we brave a little staircase that leads high up to the scruffy, deserted lanes where the city's sick once lived in caves carved into the hillside. Even children on a dare won't come here, frowns Teresa. But instead of ghosts, we find only lime bushes and thin, affronted cats. Just 20 minutes drive south from Ragusa, in the Piazza Santa Teresa in Modica, teenage boys perform somersaults off benches, calling up to their girlfriends who are leaning out of apartment windows, mock-scolding and gossiping in young voices that ring off 17th century walls as though this were an exotic aviary. The boys' collars are turned up high and their hair, despite their acrobatics, carefully arranged into immaculate quiffs. It seems every man in Modica has a pristine and theatrical barnet. I like to think of it as a kind of 21st century equivalent of wigs and powder. Even a builder going hard at it with his drill. Even the fishmonger in the arches before you reach the Palazzo Salemi selling skate and squid under a massive portrait of Padre Pio, the monk from Capania, who had stigmata that smelled of a perfume they called the odour of sanctity. Modica was once one of the most important towns in Renaissance Sicily. It might not now have the mystery of Ragusa or the cuteness of Chicli, but instead it has a swagger, a continental European feel. Downtown, the glass shutters on the apartment buildings have the look of 16th arrondissement Paris. Balanced on several rocky spurs, the old walled town, once an Arab city called Mohac, is connected to the more elegant Baroque town below by breathtaking stairs. Climb 250 steps up to the Cathedral of San Giorgio and a perpetual wind lightly rattles the doors. Inside, Baroque runs riot. Outside, pale lilac bougainvillea teems in terraced gardens, stretching down like a waterfall of Rosolio wine. What it must have been like to see these churches and palazzos and staircases when they were first built. Not here the brooding lava stone of Palermo or Catania, but towns made of gilt and mint green. Not the misery of the northern churches where you see medieval effigies of Christ wearing real human hair, his wounds shaped like chasmal mouths. Here, just fat cherubs and naiads, nebula bubbling and wavering, lovers dissolving into gurgles, holy choirs bearing mandolins, and a figure of St. Joseph with a parched wooden staff bursting with borage and starflowers. What is impossible with man is possible with God. And still, there is to these southern towns more than just the patina of devotion. 
I have seen pilgrims, shoeless on the midnight motorways, walking in their wordless hundreds, and other more modest but unforgettable things. One time, on a coast road just south of Modica, past fields and fields of cabbage and pumpkin, I stopped to buy supplies from a farmer, who let me rummage through a box of chocolatey earth for the best garlic and potatoes, and who watched my face closely for the sudden surprise and happiness on it as I found, just at the bottom, pink in the peaty cool, a bag of Venus shells just pulled from the sea. This podcast has been brought to you by The Thinking Traveller, which rents holiday villas near all the towns I mentioned, like Adesso, an immaculate architect-designed home surrounded by olive and carob trees, with views down to Noto and the sea beyond. Or the historic Masseria Costanza, ideally located in the Vendicari Nature Reserve with its own beaches and sand dunes. The company has a black book of 220 distinctive places to stay, not just in Sicily, but also Puglia, Corsica and Greece's Ionian and Sporides islands. And from spring 2021, Mallorca. For the past five years, it's been voted favourite villa rental company in Condé Nast Traveller's Reader's Choice Awards. For more details, visit thethinkingtraveller.com or just call them on 0207 377 85. One eight. We hope you enjoyed our Escape Routes podcast. Please remember to like and subscribe to help boost us in the charts and ensure you are the first to hear about new episodes.